You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. I'm glad you guys are here today, legitimately. I'm especially glad our students are here today. If you see some crumpled up, groaning chunks of teenager, it is because they spent this weekend on a mission retreat and they worked their tails off. So if you see a teenager who just looks really despondent today, offer them some ibuprofen and and ask them them what their mission retreat was like. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 today. Uh, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there, but I did want to—I I want to point out just two two things really quick as we're kind of getting there. We have house Bibles in the end of each row, by the way. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab one of those or or look awkwardly at some, look longingly at someone at the end of the row, and and they'll either pass you a Bible or I guess ask you for your number. But anyway, um, we're going to be continuing our text. But I did I did want to take a minute, and, and I'm not joking when I say this. If you Man, grab one of the teenagers, ask him about their retreat. They got to do some really cool stuff this weekend. They, they spent time partnering uh, with a church in North City called Jubilee Community Church. It's off of uh, Grand Boulevard, close to Natural Bridge. Um, and they got to uh, help them uh, prep an urban garden that they're creating. Uh, this, this Jubilee Church is super interesting. You should, you should look them up on on, on the internet. They've been there about 25 years in the community. These two pastors who um, have been in the neighborhood serving this community for a long time. Um, and one of the things their church does is they create small businesses. As, as, as they, they create small for-profit businesses in their community that are able to employ the community and empower the community. And so um, they, they're, they're working on creating this small um, urban garden that'll have a small orchard in it as well as fresh kind of like organic produce and stuff like that. And it's all going to be run by folks in the neighborhood. And, and then they'll have a farmer's market to sell fresh produce. There are no grocery stores within walking distance of that church, that neighborhood. There are zero. Uh, the last one was a Schnucks um, that when we drove by was boarded up and, and closed up. Uh, and it has been for several years. And so in that area, if you don't have access to a car or public transportation, your groceries come from a gas station. Uh, and so this is a really cool thing this church is getting to do is they holistically engage uh, our city, our, our community for the gospel. I um, mean, they also got to go and serve um, Bayless Baptist Church in South County as a church that was replanted a year ago, really similar to what uh, we're going to be helping Heartland Church do um, down in South County. This church was was all but dead, and, and the North American Mission Board came in and, and helped that church kind of start afresh and replant. There's a guy there named Evan Skelton who's helping that church uh, replant, and they have a really big refugee community around there. A lot of the Bosnian community in St. Louis is centered around that area, and so our students got to do prayer walking for them, um, as well as our students did uh, a big... Brandon Hughes came in, in Lane, um, put together kind of like a this woodworking project to kind of redo their lobby for them. It was just really cool. You, those of you who are parents of teenagers would be thoroughly surprised at the amount of manual labor the teenagers did this weekend. That's, that's how I'll say it. So it's really cool. Ask them about that. Um, we're in Mark 15 today. I, I spent too much time on that. I'm just really proud of them. It was, it was really cool to hang out with the students this weekend. Um, we're continuing our text. 
Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 33. And, and I want to I take that last song we sang, and I want to encourage you, because um, God is good like this to, to set this sort of thing up. I want to encourage you to reflect on a couple of those lyrics before we read this text. We sang this phrase together, right? Hallelujah, all I have is Christ, right? And, and we can all sit and pick apart the theological truth there, right? That Christ is the treasure, that the promise of the gospel is not primarily salvation, is not primarily heaven someday in the future, but the promise of the gospel is union with Jesus, the lover of your soul, right? And so we sat together, we stood together as a church, and we proclaimed that all I have is Christ. I would love for that to be a lens through which we engage our text today and engage our community as brothers and sisters today. You know, I, I don't know about all of you guys in the room, but Red Tree Church is dear to me. I, I had a couple really, to be totally blunt, just really hard church experiences heading into my engagement with this community. And I met Jesus in such a fresh and new way here. And this place and these people in this community is really precious to me and my family. There, there's something about this that is very um, valuable and is very just, it's just something I care about a lot. And yet, the gospel constantly reminds me that really when it comes down to it, the only thing Red Tree Church has to offer that is of any lasting value is Jesus. If you're here this morning and, and your hope is in something besides that, whether it's connecting with loving, awesome people or building friendships or finding freedom from some behavior pattern, whatever it is, like that, that stuff's all good stuff. But ultimately, the only reason this thing is a thing is because of Jesus. Because he offers himself to us because he's the lover of our soul. And he offers us union with him. So take that lens. And let's jump into our text today. We're in Matthew 15. And we're going to start in verse 42. It says this. Actually, we're going to start in verse 40. We're, we're picking up the scene on Golgotha. Christ has uttered a loud cry and breathed his last on the cross. And verse 40 tells us this, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And we had learned from the centurion that he was dead. He granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. 
Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And this is the word of the Lord. So we're the week before Easter. I know this, for those of you like traditional Baptists in the room, you're like, it's Palm Sunday, where are my fronds? Uh, this is a day that churches often celebrate the triumphal entry, but we're, we're, we're following this, our, our study in this, in this text in, in Mark. And so today we are at the last piece of the story before Resurrection Sunday. And next week is going to be amazing, right? Easter is the celebratory text. Easter is when we get together in our pastels, like loaded up on peanut butter eggs, and we celebrate how good God is and the triumph of the gospel and the power of Christ and the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it is and will be, by the way, a beautiful celebration. But what do you do before Easter? Where is the celebration when the tomb is still full? What do, you, what do you do with this text, right? And so I have, I have a thought for us that I think will be really good. We're going to take a few minutes to, to walk through this text. And there's, honestly, there's just a couple historical pieces we'll point out here. And we're going to wrap back around to the Psalms. And we're going to end our time in 1 Corinthians today. But I really think, I really think God has something good for us today. And so I'm going to pray and ask the the Holy Spirit to be with us as we engage this text, and then we'll continue. Jesus, we know that you are good. We know that you are alive. We know that the gospel is real, that, that death does not get to keep a claim on us. So Holy Spirit, this morning, as we, as we read and discuss this text, we ask that you would be our interpreter, that you would be our discipler, that you would declare your truth out of this to us, that you would cut to our hearts, and that we would find life and freedom in you in this. Spirit, we trust you to do this work, and we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, to catch us back up, in the story, to to make sure that we're all in the same emotional and mental place. We jumped into the story today at the point of Jesus' death. So remember that this has been a terrible week by all accounts, right? Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. There was this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration where the, the, the lights flicked on and Jesus' followers realized this truly is the Messiah. And there was this triumphant march towards Jerusalem and this entrance to fanfare and worship and declaration. And then things immediately went sour, Right? And Jesus spent this week, Holy Week, in Jerusalem bearing judgment upon the temple worship, going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of the people of God and essentially declaring what is lacking in their theology and their practice. It's not a smart way to win a following, by the way, is to lay judgment on the leaders in the area you're trying to build a following. But Jesus does this. And, and they essentially just decide, well, this isn't going to stand. We're going to kill this guy. 
And they get one of Jesus' own friends in on the plan. Judas agrees for a sum of money to betray Jesus. And we know where the story goes. Jesus goes and celebrates this last meal with his closest friends. And there's this weird mix of bitterness and sorrow and morbid anticipation with celebration and joy of these young men and women who are seeing God do something new, who are in the holy city and they know something's up, but they don't fully understand it, right? And all this comes together with Jesus essentially telling them, listen, it's about to go really bad and you're all just going to abandon me. And they go, no way, Jesus. This is amazing. We are here. We are in it to the end. You know, in in John's telling of the gospel, there's this moment where when Jesus is preparing kind of his final journey to Jerusalem, where they know how, how, how bad and how intense these plots are against Jesus. There's this moment in John's telling where Thomas looks at the rest of the guys and he goes, listen, we're all going to die if we go with him to Jerusalem. But we should do it anyway, because this guy's awesome. So, so these guys, they, they have this grandiose devotion of Jesus. We're ride or die for you. We're in this to the end. And then when things actually pop off, they all disappear. As soon as the armed guards show up, as soon as things go bad, as soon as Jesus is under arrest, everyone abandons him. And we walk through the scenes of Jesus's trial where, where Peter could have stood up and defended him and he cowered away and denied him. And the high priest who had explored the scriptures could have identified him for who he was, but he blasphemed him and spit upon him. And the Roman governor who had been placed in authority by God himself favored his career over justice and condemned Christ to death. And we saw our sweet Jesus, right? As he was rejected and abandoned and abused and tortured and finally nailed to a cross. And so by 9 a.m., right, all this happens over the course of a night. They have dinner on Thursday night. Things go crazy all night long. By 9 a.m., Jesus is nailed to a cross Friday morning. And he sits there for six hours, suffering and suffocating and dying. And we pick up the story when Christ breathes his last breath and he slumps over on the cross and he dies. And there is this moment of tragic irony where Christ finally gives up the ghost. And his very executioner says, surely this was the Son of God. If you remember, a year and a half ago, when we started this study, Mark 1.1 opens with a really interesting verse. You can turn over there if you want. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells you from the get-go exactly what this story is about. The man, Jesus the Messiah, the very Son of God. And then for 15 chapters, no one understands that he's actually the Son of God. 
No one actually has clarity of understanding. When he says things like, listen, I'm definitely the Messiah, but that's not what you think it is. It's actually this whole bigger thing. They go, yeah, I don't get it. And the first moment that someone actually acknowledges Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of God, his lifeless body is slumped over a cross. And the one declaring his glory is his executioner. The irony is thick and tragic. And then we're introduced to these young women. I guess they're not all young women. We're introduced to these women. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the son of the mother of Jesus' brothers. You can, you can guess who that is. And this woman named Salome, who is the mother of uh, James and John. And they're standing at Golgotha, witnessing Christ's death. There's something really important to note in this piece of the text, and I don't necessarily think this is the main thing for us today, but I think it's actually really important to note that Christ was not ultimately abandoned by everyone. He did not sit at the cross alone. There were three women with him who stayed with him to the bitter end, who witnessed his death. Mary Magdalene, who we know that Jesus had ministered to and cast demons out of. Mary, his mother. And this woman, the mother of his two closest friends. The friends are gone, but the mom's there. And those moms of you in the room are like, yeah, I totally get that. (laughs) And we're told something really interesting about these women. They had followed Jesus, and they had ministered to him. You see, I think Mark is cluing us in here to something that is beautifully true about these women's relationship to Christ. You know, we know from the gospel accounts that Jesus' ministry was financially supported by rich women. Straight up. Like, that's how it went down. Like, there were several rich and influential women who made it financially possible for Jesus to do his ministry. So, like, those of you in the house who are like, I don't think women have an equal role or experience of Christ's grace in the church, you have to, you have to reconcile yourself to that. Because Christ allowed women to be his main financial supporters of his ministry. But we hear about these three women, I think, is really interesting. They didn't just follow Christ. They ministered to him. You see, I think there's something here, and it's essentially this. We're told throughout the Gospel of Mark over and over and over and over that people don't get Jesus. They hear him, but they don't hear. They see his works, but they don't see. Right? They fled Jesus. Peter was so brought by had so much bravado and then cowered so quickly. Like his fault, like everything fell apart because these people didn't fully understand Jesus. And if we're being honest, they loved Jesus, but to a point. To a point. Jesus gave to them. They loved who Jesus was as the Messiah. They loved the things he did in his ministry. 
But ultimately, the vast majority of people who spend their time with Jesus in Mark's telling of the gospel are people who take from Jesus, who receive his love and receive his ministry and receive his blessing. And here we're introduced to three people who, for whatever reason, gave to Jesus. They ministered to him. And you notice, when things go bad, the people who are the takers disappear, and the people who are the givers stick it out. I think it's worthy of our meditation that these women loved Jesus and loved to serve him, and they stuck it out to the end. It's a powerful image. It's a powerful image of what it means to have relationship with Christ. Do you love Christ for what he gives you, or do you love Christ? Do you love him for his stuff, or do you just love him? John Mark McMillan has this song, and I don't remember the name of the song, but in one of the refrains, he says, when I first met you, I didn't know you had money. I just knew I loved you. There's something about that that we see in our text today. Some women who love Christ so dearly that their affection for him as a person, their compassion in the midst of his suffering, overwrites their fear of retribution being connected with him. There's something there that I think some of us probably need to meditate on in terms of how we relate to Jesus. But regardless, the story continues. We're, we're introduced here to this new other character, Joseph, Joseph Varimathea, who enters the scene. And there's all sorts of interesting things here that we won't necessarily uh, dig into too deeply. But we know that Joseph is a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin. These are the very same people that in verse 1 of chapter 15 seemingly unanimously condemn Jesus to death. So either Joseph is a, a coward who, who essentially allowed uh, the swell of the bloodlust to carry the day in the council, or uh, maybe he just wasn't invited to the meeting. It seems Pretty, pretty, a uh, pretty likely thing since they put that together at the last minute to kind of uh, capture Jesus, right? Or maybe he went along with it and then he had repentance later. We don't know. We know this guy is a respected member of the council. And, and the text tells us he was looking for the kingdom of God. There was something in him that was pursuing Christ. And we don't know what's going on in this guy's heart, but we know that whatever it is, it's powerful enough for him to put his neck out there to honor Christ. And I think this is important to think about because there's like, for the people in this text right now, they haven't read chapter 16. Like this is over in their experience. Even the people who love Jesus, who were with him, and their experience of this in the moment, it's done. Christ has died, the bad guys have won, and things are going back to how they were three years ago, which is pretty terrible. And so in putting himself out there, which by the way, he was definitely putting himself out there. He not only was placing himself very publicly at odds with all of his colleagues who had just shown they have no problem killing people who put themselves at odds with them. 
He had also gone to the Roman governor and connected himself with someone who was killed for treason against the Roman government. So Joseph puts himself out there pretty, pretty intensely with two really important, powerful groups who are around him. And he does it for seemingly no payoff, right? He goes and he risks, risks life and limb, as it were, at the very minimum, reputation and power, to just honor a dead guy. I think that's, again, worth thinking about. Why? What's the point? Well, the point is, what we see in Joseph is that he loved Jesus. We don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know anything about this guy's story, but we know that he was willing to do this act of honor to Christ that had seemingly no benefit for him whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite. He goes, he puts himself out there. It's, it's interesting to note, but not necessary, that Pilate is surprised that Jesus is dead. Six hours of torture on a Roman cross is actually pretty insignificant compared to the two or three days a lot of condemned criminals experience. But when he finds out Jesus is dead, he grants the corpse to Joseph, who then has the grisly task of taking Christ off of the cross. And I don't want to be crass here, but you need to imagine the reality of that. The dude has to go out with a ladder and pull him off the nails and take his body down, a full-grown man, hoist it up in the air. And he takes Christ down and he lays him in a shroud and he cleans him, dignifies him, and covers his body and takes it to his own tomb. And the way Jewish tombs worked in this day, I don't know how many of you have been to Israel. It's a little dry. <laughs> they would cut these tombs out of stone and you would essentially, uh, the Jews cared very much about burial. And there's a whole lot of theological reasons why, but they cared a lot about it. So there was no embalming. You would instead essentially clean the body and pack it with ointment and spices. And you would lay it on one of these shelves where it would just decay naturally. And when it worked its way down to just bones, you would sweep it into a jar and then stack the jars in the back of the cave and then reuse the shelves. So he takes Jesus into his own family tomb, filled with jars of his ancestors, and gives him his shelf. It's been set aside for him. And he rolls the stone in front of it, and we're told at the very end of the text that these women followed, and they noted where the tomb was. And this, this piece is interesting, by the way, because you can imagine these women's suspicion when Joseph shows up to take Christ's body off of the cross. A known and respected member of the council, the council that just condemned Christ to death, shows up and begins taking his body off the cross while they watch at a distance. You can imagine what's going through their minds. Well, what are they going to do now? Are they going to publicly display his dead body? Is this going to be one of those things? But then he begins to respect it, clean it, prepare it. And in the way only a group of moms who really love a 30-year-old single guy can do, they notice, well, he didn't do it right. <laughs> 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 I 
That's not how you do that. And Joseph is rushed. The Sabbath is quickly approaching. It is 3 p.m. heading into sunset, and the Jews mark their days from sunset to sunset, not midnight to midnight. So there's only a few hours until the Sabbath starts, and it's a high and holy Sabbath, by the way. It's a really important one. And Joseph, just really quick, is actually making himself unclean, unable to participate in a lot of the things he would be expected to participate in that weekend as a council member. But he has to finish it. And so he doesn't do the full job, and the women who love Jesus notice that. And they follow him, and they see where he places the body, and they note to themselves, okay, we'll come back after the Sabbath, and we'll do that right, and we'll fix it. And that's our story. There's, There's no resurrection hope yet. All we have is a group, a small group of people who love Jesus enough That when everything has fallen apart, when all the prestige is gone, when all the talk of Messiah and destroying Rome and restoration has whittled away to nothing, and the fickle crowds and the miracles and the food is all gone, and all that is left is a dead man on a cross. There are four people who love Jesus enough to honor him to the end to honor him to the end, to see the thing out. And beloved, I think there is a truth for us in this. You see, this text is sorrowful, but it's beautiful. What we see here is a group of people who have no clue what God is actually doing. They have no clue. From their perspective, Christ has been defeated. And yet, their love fuels them to see the thing out. To see it to the end. Now, we have the benefit of being on the other side of the cross. On the other side of the empty tomb on the other side of 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit moving forward and taking back this cursed and dead earth from death itself. We get to see what they didn't see. We get to see that Christ's death on the cross was not his defeat, but was his victory. That, That Pilate's condemnation of Christ was not this terrible, awful miscarriage of justice, but it was actually God's sovereign hand taking back the broken and dead world from the curse. That the blasphemy of the high priest was in fact the beginning of the king's coronation. That the final breaths on the cross were not the execution of a of a foolish rabbi, but was Jesus taking his authority over this earth. That his final cry and his last breath were in fact his inauguration into his kingship over this universe. See, we see that. But they didn't. They had none of that hope fueling their behavior. I think the truth there 
hopefully, is easy for us to see. Beloved, when we, when we fall in love with Jesus, and I mean that phrase specifically, when we fall in love with Jesus, not intellectually assent to some truths or a doctrinal statement, not engage in a culture or find life and friendship in a community. No, when we fall in love with the lover of our soul, Jesus, that love will fuel our action, will fuel our behavior and our decisions, even when we have no clue what is going on. Even when we are totally detached from the reality of the powerful movement of God's kingdom. Even when circumstances seem to be crushing us and the weight of injustice or relational wrong or personal habitual sin seems to be the entire world, love of Christ will fuel us to pursue him and honor him. And beloved, I have good news for you. Jesus is victorious even when you don't feel like he is. Jesus is reigning over his creation when you feel like your problem rules the whole world. When it feels like the tomb is full and hope is lost, Jesus is king. And we have no clue how crazy a stuff he's going to do. I'm going to reread the last bit of that psalm Audra read for us. This is Psalm 22, starting in verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Beloved, Beloved of Jesus, he has done it. He's done. He has been victorious. He has, as Jesus said really early in Mark, I don't know if you guys remember this, when he was going through some of his parables, he gave this brilliant parable where he said, man, if you want to rob a house, if you want to do some breaking and entering, and that person is really ripped, you have to tie them up. You got to get someone stronger than them who can tie them up and then you can just take everything and they can't do anything about it. And you can imagine Jesus' disciples being like, wait, where is this going? I do not understand this parable. Are you telling us to rob people? But what Jesus is saying here is, listen, 
I know it feels like evil controls this world. I know you feel like captives to death, to curse, to Satan himself. But I have good news for you. I'm just way stronger than him. And I'm here. And he can't do jack about it. And I'm going to tie him up. And I'm just going to take everything I want from this world. Because ultimately it's mine. And he can't do anything about it. Beloved, he has done it. He has tied up the ruler of this world. And he has taken everything he wants. He has looked at us and our death in our sin, in our self-centeredness, in our apathy, in our consumer fake cultural Christianity, in our religiosity. He's looked at us in our complete and total self-serving natures, and he's just said, you're mine. I'm taking you. This is how this is going down. Beloved, this is our Jesus. Strong and triumphant and reigning and ruling even when you don't see it. So here's how I'd like to end out our time. I'm going to read us a text from 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that Paul wrote to what is perhaps the most dysfunctional church of the early New Testament church. They struggled with a lot of sin patterns. They were living unto the world. They were. If you ever want to complain about Red Tree, take a few minutes and read 1 Corinthians and be grateful. (laughs) Paul wrote this letter to this church to rip them asunder for being dirtbags. He's actually way nicer than that. But he he called them out on on their stuff. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 10, we read this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Really quick. Have you ever been in one of those theological type arguments and someone just Jesus shoots you and they're like, well, I just was honored Jesus and all this. Thanks a lot, Steve. We all do. (laughs) Is there a Steve in here? Because I'm sorry if there is. (laughs) (laughs) Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that, well, so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. In verse 16, I did also baptize the household of Stephanias. Beyond that, I do not remember whether I baptized anyone else. Imagine being in that church when that letter was read the first time. And Stephanias in the back, like, hey! Oh, okay, cool. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Beloved, this whole thing is crazy. I hope you know that. To sit here and say that a guy died 2,000 years ago and that somehow means life and freedom and fulfillment for you. It's foolish. And even if you buy into the theology and the history of it, it still feels really foolish when you go to work this week and the pressures are still there and the broken relationship and the tension and the money problems are still there. And you deal with that person in your friend circle or your family, or you deal with that hurt or that injustice that was done to you, and you look at it and you go, okay, I've bought into this thing. Why does this stuff still seem so weighty and so real? Why does it seem like the whole world is defined by this piece of my life? Christ is so big. Why does this still seem like it just beats me down every day? Beloved, I hope you hear. We're fools. That is how it feels. That is how it seems. But let me tell you something. Christ is still working. And he's still reigning. And he's still calling and drawing you even when it feels like it isn't. Even when it seems like this whole thing is a crock. Christ is still Christ. And this world is still His. So let us be fools by the wisdom of this world. Let us be a people who actually fall in love with this Jesus 
who actually live out of our love for this Jesus. Let, let our affection for him drive our actions, not our understanding of the current circumstances. Amen? Because God is real. And Christ is reigning and victorious. And even when the tomb feels full, he is still the king on his throne. God, you are so good. So powerful. Lord, I confess to you that I am a reed blown in the wind, that I am tossed back and forth by every wind of circumstance in my life. I am an emotional, spiritual mess of a man. And I let things weigh on me. And I seek to be wise and cunning by the standards of my culture and my time. God, it just doesn't work. God, I need you today. I need you to be the king on your throne. I need you to be the lover of my soul. God, woo us that we might fall in love with you. God, let that just be the fuel for us of everything. God, we love you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Redtree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.